Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. Today is Sunday, January 30th, 2022. And on today's podcast, I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Another lovely day in Georgia politics where a lot of things are happening. So, you know, makes it easier for us to to have a show uh, worth having. Yeah, lots and lots of things going on. Um, On today's show, we're going to discuss some new polling from the AJC that gives Democrats a pretty tough early outlook on their chances in the 2022 election season. We're also going to talk about uh, landmark legislation that was introduced by House Speaker David Ralston earlier this week. He introduced a sweeping bipartisan proposal aimed at making it easier to access mental health treatment in Georgia. And notably and, and unusually, the Speaker himself is a lead sponsor of that legislation, um, signaling the importance of this proposal to him. And then finally, we'll wrap up the show today with a discussion of the culture wars that continue to heat up at Georgia schools as Republicans press measures at the legislature to constrain the teaching of race in the classroom, to ban books and other materials that they say is obscene, and to shape school board elections in one county where they've lost ground politically. But Luke, let's start with that polling. So You know, early in the year, the AJC typically releases polling um, that I think, especially this year, gives us a good thermometer to take the temperature of races as we head into the 2022 election cycle. And some of the key takeaways from this polling, um, President Biden's popularity has sunk significantly in the state since last May, um, and that is largely driven by his uh, lower popularity among Democrats and independents. Um, Also, Republicans are in a pretty good position for statewide contests in 2022. Governor Kemp has a seven-point lead in this poll over Stacey Abrams, and Herschel Walker has a more narrow lead, a lead that's uh, within the margin of error um, against Senator Raphael Warnock. Um, I'll kick it to you. Any any top-line reactions to these numbers? Is this about where you expected Democrats to be at this point? This is about where I expected we would be. Uh, since July, if you asked me in January, I would have a more rosy outlook that this midterm could be an ahistorical one. But just historically speaking, midterms are hard for the president's party, and the president is having a hard time right now. <laughs> he got some, you know, good welcome news with uh, Supreme Court Justice Breyer retiring, but it, it's notable to me that like the best news that uh, Biden could get is an old guy, reti- an 82 year old retiring. Uh, everything else has gone pretty, pretty rough. And some of it's, uh, you know, places where I would put more blame on the administration. And a lot of it is where I wouldn't put a lot of blame, but it's just world events uh, making, you know, things rough. And I, I'm not surprised by any of these numbers because, Things are so polarized in the world now, and these campaigns are so early that really the only candidate that I consistently see anything from is uh, Governor Kemp, which you know makes sense since he is the governor of the state of Georgia. That is a uh, a position that gives you a lot of ability to make news and to do things and to you know be uh, noticed. Whereas Abrams, Purdue, Herschel Walker, and everyone else who's running for office, I, I don't really feel like I am seeing that much from them. And th- these numbers reflect that in my mind. They reflect the national political environment, and they reflect the fact that Governor Kemp is the governor and can do things and, and make news and uh, push his initiatives a lot easier than his opponents can at this time in the cycle. 
How much do you think Biden's popularity matters for Democrats in the state? You know, we've talked about this new trend among state Democrats and the way that they've approached national figures like Biden, tying themselves much more closely to President Biden, particularly in the runoff elections um, that put Senators Ossoff and Warnock in the Senate. Also, you know, Stacey Abrams, one of her premier issues has been voting rights, and that's an issue that Joe Biden has tried to lead on in recent weeks. Um, how much Though do she you... notably did not attend his speech in Georgia on that issue. Yeah, the, and well, and I, I think that that opens up a little bit of the like, what does this mean for state Democrats question? Because, you know, a lot of Biden's sinking popularity is among Democrats, and so, so there is room there for Joe Biden to rebound, at least among the Democratic base, if they have a successful year. But overall, what do you think it may mean for, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams' chances, Raphael Warnock's chances in November? I think Biden's popularity, Democrats' national popularity, is a baseline that you can either go above or go below, but it's not going to be dramatically above or below that number. And... Georgia has a, as we have talked about a lot, a very inelastic electorate. And so I think how Democrats are feeling nationally about what Democrats are getting done or not will affect Abrams and Warnock's numbers. And they will be a couple points above or below that. I'm hopeful that they will be a couple points above that. But, and so, you know, nationally right now, according to the 538 polling average, Biden's at 418 um, approval rating, but in Georgia, he's significantly lower at, at 34%. And so, you know, getting to 50% when you're starting baseline is 34 is pretty rough. But even though Biden's starting at 34, Abrams is not. Abrams is much closer to the 50% mark in in her head to head, uh, with Kemp. And, but it's just, you know, political gravity will drag you down. And if the national Democrats are having this hard of a time, it will just be harder and harder for state Democrats to do well. Because I, 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 you know, I, I would just be very surprised if Biden's numbers stay as bad as they are and we're able to win these races. The other thing is a lot of the news cycle has been focused on Democrats and people's frustrations with COVID, frustrations with the economy. But I thought it was notable in this poll that two of the leading issues for Republican politicians in this state, they actually poll uh, pretty poorly. Governor Kemp has put as one of his top legislative priorities to implement constitutional carry legislation, allowing people to carry uh, guns in public without having to get a license in advance. Only 28% agree with that policy as proposed, while 70% of people polled disagreed with that. And then the other issue that may be forced back upon Georgia Republicans by the Supreme Court this year is the possibility that the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that protects access to abortion in this country, that that decision is overturned by the current Supreme Court. And when asked uh, if people agreed with overturning Roe, only 24% of those polled said yes, they do agree with overturning it, and 68% Um, think that it should not be overturned. You know, that's important because we've passed a very aggressive abortion ban in this state that would likely go into effect or some form of which could go into effect if the court ultimately decides to overturn Roe. And so you could see yourself in a position in November where Kemp has backed a broadly unpopular constitutional carry bill and has to deal with the issue of abortion 
and more of the the criticism and scrutiny comes back on Republicans when this becomes a choice and not just a referendum on the president. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And that's why I'm not, you know, having a, a five alarm fire freak out uh, about this poll, because it is really early. And, you know, Abrams and Warnock have not had a chance to run against their opponents in a real way and hold them accountable. And, you know, Kemp is just now, you know, doing his open campaign salvos and this, you know, gun uh, licensing removal is the only way you really think about it. Uh, you know, like that's his main campaign push right now. And yeah, that poll had it at a very, very negative uh, place of, you know, 59.9% of people disapproving of it, strongly disapproving of it. And, you know, with numbers like that, we can at least say that uh, Governor Kemp is not uh, using the polls to determine what his policy positions will be. So kudos to him for that. But I think over time, as people start to associate Kemp with these negative positions, that that could drag his numbers down. Because while these numbers are bad for Democrats in the sense that they are not ahead, one you know, rule of politics that I've always, you know, subscribed to is like when you go into your re-election year and you're under 50%, you should be a little worried. Um, you know, really, if you get under 45, you should be really worried. And, you know, Kemp's not that low yet. But the fact that he's under 50 before his opponents have ever had a chance to actually make news and, hold, you know, hold him accountable and do anything to really make voters think differently about Kemp and his record that would worry me because that means while Kemp has had three years of being governor and complete control of the news cycle, as can, at least comparatively to his two opponents, you know, still his numbers are still pretty low. And so, you know, on the other, you know, while Democrats are behind, he's still uh, still lower than I'd want to be. The other figure that stands out in some of this polling, and, and this is a separate poll, not the AJC's poll, but a poll from... Quinnipiac showed that Herschel Walker, former UGA football star, he is the leading uh, Republican candidate in that Senate primary. I think that the fact that he's leading is not surprising. He did get the Trump endorsement. But the number in Quinnipiac was that the poll had Herschel Walker at 81% and Gary Black, uh, state agriculture commissioner, at only 6%. And nobody else really registered at all on that poll. What did you make of how dominant Herschel Walker has been in the early stages of this Republican primary? I think that people really like sports <laughs> and they, and go, they dogs. <laughs> go dogs and, you know, they really like the 1980 national champion team and they've heard of Herschel Walker before. And while every time you pump gas, you see Gary Black's name, uh, you probably don't know Gary Black or anything that he's done. Um, if you're not a deep, deep, deep Republican political insider, who's the type of person that goes to candidate fish fries, like you have no idea who Gary Black is or anything he's ever done. Like I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's never been a front page article of the AJC about anything that Gary Black has done, which is probably good for Gary Black, because if you're the front page of the AJC as agricultural commissioner, something horrible has happened um, uh, more, more likely than not. Um, so it, it's just like no one knows who he, any of these people are. And Gary Black, I'm pretty sure, is the only currently elected person who is running for this position. And while there's other folks in there who I actually have seen support for Lathan Sadler around, but he's a non-elected 
I think first time candidate. Uh, I hope I'm not wrong about that. But I, I mean, think that's right. He was in the Trump administration as a staffer, um, like a national security staffer, I believe. But I don't think he's had any prior elected experience. Right. And so it, it's just very hard to break through in this environment. It's still a little early, but as far as the primaries go, it, it's getting a lot later. And because now in, they're only three and a half months away, right? Yeah, May. Right. And so you combine that with the fact that, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's Georgia, it's the Georgia Republicans. So if COVID's a factor, I'm sure it's less of a factor than it is for a lot of other places and a lot of other constituencies, but it's still a factor. And I think um, none of these candidates have found a way to break through. And you and I are obsessed with Georgia politics. We, you know, spend our free time talking about it. And I cannot think of any news breaking that anyone has done besides their announcements, except Governor Kemp, and 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 produce lawsuits. That's those are the only stories I have seen about any of these candidates, and uh, that to me says that they're having a really really hard time figuring out a way to break through, and I don't think it is entirely on the media that these folks have not found a way to get their message through. I, I think it is emblematic of their inability to take to task the fact that the only reason that Herschel Walker is in this race is because Donald Trump wanted him to be, and he's a former national championship Georgia football player. Those are his two credentials that give him the ability to be in this race, and no one is willing to say that in, in a way that is to break through, but also no one is willing to draw the contrast that would be necessary to say why just letting Trump handpick a senator is a bad thing. And I, I, I think that is the principal reason why Herschel is doing so well, because no one wants to get on Trump's bad side. To give you a sense, Gary Black has tried to break through in this race. Uh, last week, he was on a conservative radio show where he described Herschel Walker as a wind-up toy and said Georgians aren't at all interested in voting for a staff that has to get up every morning and put their senator together. That was some of his criticism on a show called The John Frederick Show, which is this online conservative radio show. Which is, you know, to, to like illustrate my point, that is like a brutal statement, but it's it's hiding the ball because he's a wind-up toy for who? He's, a, you know, like, who is he pushing? Whose agenda will he be pushing? It's Donald Trump's, and he won't say that because Gary Black is under the impression that somehow he's going to win this race without convincing the Trump base that they shouldn't just listen to Donald Trump. And if you don't make the argument, you have no chance of winning it. And honestly, I don't understand why someone who's polling at 8%, who's won many, many statewide races in Georgia, isn't willing to just, you know, take the gloves off and make your actual argument rather than, you know, dancing around it. Well, and the, I guess the other question I have too is how effective it is to prosecute this case only on conservative radio. Um, you know, if it wasn't, I mean, I only came across that statement because Greg Bluestein picked it up and tweeted about it. Thanks, Greg. Um, but it, you know, it, he's not giving these interviews or, or making this case very aggressively in the AJC or in other bigger media outlets in the state. And, you know, you, you see this dynamic kind of on both sides of the Republican Senate primary because Herschel Walker really isn't doing interviews with mainstream media. He's more so doing 
interviews and news hits with organizations like Newsmax, or he did an interview last week with a media outlet called the Daily Caller, pretty decently well-known conservative media outlet, where he was, <laughs> and this is, uh, I'll play the audio, but just to tell you what this was. Oh, because I haven't heard this. Um, he got asked by the uh, the host if he would have been willing to vote for the infrastructure bill that Joe Biden signed. So along those lines, would, would you have voted for the $1.2 trillion bipartisan well, infrastructure bill? You know, I, I have to see all the facts. I think that's one thing I think, and I think you've got to be an Alabama fan because you asked that question there. Until I can see all the facts, you can't answer the question. And I think that's what is totally unfair to someone like myself to say, what are you going to vote for? You know, you can tell me it was one point nine trillion, or you can say it was two trillion, or whatever. Same thing with Biden wanted this four trillion. One thing you start talking about trillions of dollars, that is a lot of money. So I think what you got to do is you got to see all the facts and see what you got to weigh in then. And right now, I haven't been privileged of them to give me every all the facts so I can weigh in and give you a good uh, opinion on it. So he didn't want to say whether or not he would have voted for a bill that's already passed, that's already law, because he hasn't seen all the facts. <laughs> and I, I want to be fair for a moment and then be very brutal. So the fair thing would be is, if this you know conservative media outlet host had asked, like, what do you think about the competitiveness with China bill, which is like a super important bill, and I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, it's like, it's got a lot of really intricate details but it is a bill that has definitely been, while in the news and talked about, like I couldn't tell you right now if I, what I think about all the provisions of that bill. Whereas if you're running for United States Senate and you don't know the basics of the biggest bipartisan bill of, you know, probably the past 20 years or so at least, and it's an infrastructure bill, so it's not something that is super technical. It gets roads and bridges. It's like you're either for that or you're not. And it, I, I just don't think that this is as hard as, uh, you know, hopeful Senator Walker wants to make it out to be. And that if you're running for singing, I feel like this is just like one of those bills you should know by now. And it, it really illustrates, I think, again both why Gary Black is making the argument that he's making and why that argument is not working because he has to connect the dots that the only reason that Herschel Walker is running for this position is because Donald Trump wants him to and that that is his only credential for this race. And until you make it clear to Georgians that there will be a cost by not by having someone like Herschel Walker who is not briefed on these issues, who does not know how government works, you're not going to convince anybody of it. And there's easy ways for you to do this. If I was Gary Black, I would say, like, Herschel Walker doesn't know what he's doing up there. The Democrats are going to roll all over with him. You won't know what he's going to do. You can't trust him. He has no voting record. He has no government record. You don't know what Herschel Walker will do, and all you know is that Donald Trump likes him personally, and you can't trust how he's going to vote on abortion or X, Y, or Z issue, and you just hammer him on these things. And I, I think that could be very effective for a conservative like Gary Black or really any of these other guys that have stronger, articulate positions on what they want to do, what they stand for, because... 
We see this a lot from these celebrity candidates like Tommy Tupperville in Alabama, where they just like fumble and all shucks their way through every answer of like, I don't know, what is this bill? You know, it's just like they don't answer anything. And while I feel like that's a lot more effective in general elections, because then you're kind of opening up uh, moderate and independent voters and, you know, lean voters of each party to maybe support you because you're hard to pin down and so they're like oh well you know they maybe they agree with me on these positions in a primary you can really hammer people when they are not the most conservative or the most liberal option and that's been done incredibly effectively uh before and and a lot of trump backed candidates have lost that way where they are people who are just not qualified and don't have the conservative bonafides that conservative voters are very, very serious about. Um, and the thing I, I really think is interesting here is you're seeing Kemp do this so effectively already and that he positioned himself so effectively, almost clairvoyantly, because a lot of the decisions he's made as governor perfectly prepared him for this scenario of having an opponent from the right who was not a, uh, you know, who was a Trumper. So he saw Kemp getting a standing ovation at the Faith and Freedom Coalition dinner that he went to, despite the fact that, you know, Ralph Reed is the type of person you would think who would be supportive of uh, Trump and that wing of the party because of the fact that Kemp has been so strong on a lot of really important conservative issues that if you had a candidate running against Herschel Walker, who would be like, hell no, I would not vote for the infrastructure bill. I hate Joe Biden and I would never do anything that he wants to do. I mean, it's just like, it's such an easy political win for uh, a conservative to hit at, you know, go after Herschel on these terms and no one is going to win by following the exact same strategy that the Republicans who lost in the 2016 presidential primary did, which is wait for Herschel Walker to implode and pick up the pieces. It's not going to happen unless you implode him. <laughs> and and the fact that no one has taken the kid gloves off against him and the reasons why he's running and why he should not be uh, the senatorial nominee for the Republican Party um, is, is amazing to me because... Since their numbers are so bad, I would think someone would try it just to see what would happen. Yeah, I'm confused as to why Herschel wasn't immediately a no on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Like, we didn't play this clip in the clip that you just heard, but in the segment before that, he was talking about the debt and how we're spending money we don't have. And it seemed to wind him up to an answer of being against the bill for its impact on the national debt. Um and I, you know, like, are they being strategic within his camp of, of trying to think ahead and position him as a potentially more moderate candidate who maybe is willing to work with the president on issues that benefit Georgia and do that kind of thing? Or were they just unprepared and, and he fumbled the answer? I, I mean, it's hard to say, but, but it seemed it, like a layup. This, I mean, yeah, this is a layup because, like I said, this is not some smaller niche bill that this daily caller guy is trying to, you know, gotcha question on or, you know, I mean, this is a genuine question that any reporter and any candidate should consider 100% fair. And two, you should be prepared for because this is just a huge issue in the past 
Congress, and if you want to be in the Senate and you can't answer what you think about the infrastructure bill, which is one of the largest bills ever passed and is about an issue as straightforward as infrastructure, it, it, it just, this just reiterates the I don't know why Herschel Walker is running for this position. And if his, his, he keeps fumbling his way through here, which, you know, should be a familiar concept of a bad idea for him that I just don't see how, how Republicans are so comfortable with this idea. Well, and I mean, even if you set aside the, the expectation that he should demonstrate he's interested in and prepared to do the job, Trump had a position on the infrastructure bill. He opposed it. So like, even if you're just trying to keep yourself in the Trump lane, like the fact that you didn't just copy Trump's position in that question to me is also like, I don't, maybe I'm going to go out on a prepared. like huge limb here. I don't think Herschel Walker and Donald Trump, when they do hang out, talk about politics very much. Probably not. <laughs> he did play, Herschel did play for Trump in the USFL back in the day. So maybe they have good memories from that. Let's move on here and talk about the uh, mental health legislation that was introduced by the speaker at a press conference last week. This was notable, Luke, that the speaker himself put himself as the lead sponsor on this legislation, that he introduced it at a press conference where he had a bipartisan group of lawmakers. He also had uh, mental health advocates and people who'd participated in a mental health uh, commission that came up with a lot of the recommendations that went into this bill. There is no issue, and I want to be very clear on this, there is no issue this session more important to me than this issue. I am tired of telling desperate and hurting families that we have no treatment options available in Georgia. I am tired of looking in the faces of mothers who have lost a child because they saw no hope. And I'm tired of seeing the faces of those whose spiral downward has been fed by substance abuse. And when you look at the bill, it addresses access to mental health care with a variety of policy mechanisms. I mean, actually, there, I mean, there's way too many to list, but in general, they, you know, according to the summary from the AJC, they want to increase the number of mental health professionals in the state. They want to require insurance companies to treat mental health care and physical health care equally in terms of what they cover in their insurance plans. They want to create some sort of a co-responder model for uh, first responders who are responding to people with mental health crises, having people who have more expertise in that be the ones to help show up on the scene and, and help people in those situations. They want to improve the data that's collected and then one thing that's unclear at this point is they need to find some sort of funding mechanism to fund a lot of these improvements. Um, I think, according to the press, the speaker couldn't say last week exactly what it would cost. In general, Luke, though, this is, you know, kind of a, this is the other side of the coin from most of what we're going to talk about in this legislative session, which is, you know, a bunch of half-baked bad policy ideas that are much more aimed at winning a Republican primary than they are at putting good policy into place in this state. This is definitely the flip of that. And, and it's a trend that we've come to see out of the speaker over the last few years of his desire to put his caucus's focus on productive 
things that make them look like the adults in the room, but he also sort of allows to bubble along the sides the the needs of his more conservative lawmakers who are more focused on primaries than they are on governing. You know, any thoughts on how you see that trend playing out in in this legislative session? I, I know this isn't surprising, but you know, as Democrats have been ascended in the state, they haven't made a lot of inroads in the state legislature and and um, you know, this has been under under Ralston's direction this whole time. Well, the the first thing I would say is, while it's true for a lot of them, a lot of times I think the reason why Ralston focuses on these big landmark, reasonable adult-in-the-room things is because that's who he wants to be as a politician, and those are the things that he you know, got elected for and that he likes to focus on doing. Um, and he's very in control of who he can be as a politician. True. He and doesn't have a lot of threats to his power. He does not. And the other side of that, too, is I think a lot of the reason why these more conservative, uh, crazy red meat issues come up is because that is who is elected and that is what they want. It's not just about winning a primary for a lot of them. I mean, it's genuine that that is what they want. So I would start there because that to me, is a struggle between what Ralston likes to focus on and what his caucus ends up making him focus on and what the state Senate makes him end up, you know, focusing on. And I think this is something, unfortunately, that has been brought to the top of legislators' minds with the CEO of Marga um, taking his own life recently and a long ongoing conversation in Georgia about how mental health funding has just not been adequate. And one thing that is less frustrating in Georgia politics than I imagine a lot of other places, especially nationally, is that when Georgia has a bubbling legitimate problem, people actually will talk about it and people will try to come to a solution on it. And at least in our current composition of government, something typically gets done in the same way that you know, several years ago, Ralston helped push through a giant tax increase <laughs> to fund for tran- fund transportation. Like Ralston and the House leadership are not afraid of grappling things that might be unpopular uh, every once in a while. And this is one of those issues that has reached the point of something really desperately needs to get done. And there's momentum behind it. And I'm hopeful that we will be able to get something along these lines done. As far as how to fund it, you know, Georgia's revenues have been up, and there are lots of options on finding the revenue to do it, and there's ways that we could, you know, increase our revenue sources if you really wanted to do it and really want to uh, pay for it, and this does seem like something that they want to pay for, and unlike the federal government, we can't put it on the credit card, so we actually have to find a way to pay for it and i i this is one of those things that feel like if they don't get it done it would be a failure and ralston typically does not like to have those (laughs) i mean no politician does but ralston doesn't really announce things that he doesn't actually think he's going to get done so i I imagine they're going to find a way to to make this happen yeah i think they find a way to make it happen too um you know it got a pretty good reception from the governor after the speaker introduced uh, the legislation this week, um, Governor Kemp was pretty positive about it. You know, the only point of contention I could possibly see is the question of where you do find the money for this. 
in part because presumably the governor's budget was prepared without accounting for this legislation, although I don't know if we know that for sure or not. Um, and the governor also has important priorities for the state budget surplus, the the most expensive of which is doing the uh, the tax rebates that he announced at the Eggs and Issues breakfast earlier in session. And so do you end up in a spot where those two items are conflicting for funding? Um, the thing that is notable here is that this proposal does not include Medicaid expansion. And with the uh, federal incentives that are on the table and the funding that comes from the ACA for Medicaid expansion, a lot of that funding could be driven towards accessing mental health care because especially under the requirement that insurance companies treat mental and physical health care services the same, people who have insurance would have a mechanism for paying for mental health care access in this state. And that money, when funded through insurance, could be put into a system that is more well-resourced, can hire more mental health professionals, can get more uh, space and facilities, medical facilities for people to get mental health treatment, all of that is on the table, and as far as I'm aware, none of that is a part of the speaker's uh, proposal here. Um, so that is one missing element of it, but otherwise I think this is something that is likely to get done. And, and I think for Speaker Ralston, what he wants particularly for his vulnerable Republican members is for them to be able to say, this is what they spend an election year legislative session focused on, just as in the past when they focused on paid leave and other uh, less polarizing issues. He wants this to be their message um, when they run for re-election in November. Yeah, it's you know it's hard for me to be frustrated because yes, it is good political strategy for Ralston, and it is good triangulation of giving his more vulnerable members uh, something to campaign on. But you know, you and I both do this show because we care about policy and care about the state and want good things to happen and the government to be effective and to to do good. And this is an example of that uh, in the current version. <laughs> and so, you know, hopefully it, it stays on that trajectory of actually making a difference and, and they find the money for it and get it passed easily. And, you know, Democrats and Republicans can go campaign on doing something good and bipartisan for the state and not focus so much on the, the div divisive issues. So overall win in my book. Well, and to think what our, politics would be like, because I too am a little torn at, you know, praising kind of a, a half solution when there's a, a bigger solution there on the table. But to think how different our politics would be if Republicans felt pressed to uh, meet the expectations of voters by governing in a productive way instead of elevating, uh, you know, narrow issues that only excite their base. Um, you know, this is, a, this is an incentive structure in politics that I think ought to be rewarded more often um, you know, taking things seriously over losing their minds. Speaking of which, let's let's <laughs> lose our minds. <laughs> let's, let's lose our minds in this last segment, because uh, you know, on the one hand, you do have that that focus on a more substantive kind of grown up in the room issue from the speaker. On the other hand, you now have four proposals from uh, Republicans in the legislature that would basically all aim in different ways at this goal of constraining the way that race is taught in Georgia schools. Um, the most high profile version of this legislation is House Bill 888, which would prohibit the teaching of, of 
several different concepts, one of which is that it would prohibit teaching that the United States is a systemically racist country, other provisions that would be banned that you couldn't teach under this legislation would be that individuals bear collective guilt or are inherently responsible for past members of the same race for the actions of those people, um, or that any individual should feel discomfort, anguish, or other psychological distress over their race or their gender or some other characteristic. You know, most notably about that bill is that it has a pretty stiff financial penalty for schools that uh, continue to violate this statute. As much as 20% of their state funding under QBE could be taken away um, if they're found to be on the wrong side of this law. Um, three other bills basically aim at the same kind of goal, but are, are more focused on banning the teaching of divisive concepts. Um, and, and all of this is, is wrapped around this conversation in conservative politics right now over ending critical race theory in the classroom, even though there's no evidence that critical race theory is being taught in Georgia schools. Luke, what are we to do with all this mess? Well, <laughs> it's hard hard to know because there's there's so many different angles to it. I think to knock the easy layup out of the way, it's like critical race theory is not being taught in Georgia schools. I went to Georgia law, a very highly regarded law school, and we literally never talked about anything like critical race theory. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it's not happening anywhere in any place in Georgia, to my knowledge, where like this is actually being taught. And I think the thing that we should take m into account the most on this is that this is just bad policy. Regardless of the politics, it's very bad policy. And the reason why is because Politically speaking, taking like philosophical, actual critical race theory that's taught in some places, the, the political conception of critical race theory is a witch hunt where like everything is critical race theory and, and nothing is critical race theory at the same time. And so all these bills are just going to cause a bunch of headaches for teachers, administrators, the government in trying to assess like, oh, was this lesson plan critical race theory or not? Because they aren't, and you know, to their credit, they are actually trying to define what critical race theory is, uh, legislatively speaking, so that it, there would be some guidance at least. If you're going to pursue a stupid policy that wins stupid prizes, at least you're you know letting people know uh, when and if they're going to violate that. Um, but although functionally with that, it's still hard to figure out how this would work because you could presumably create some definition that, that captures the, the concepts that Republicans have been the most upset about. But then I, as I understand it, what you would have is some sort of an appeal system where students or teachers, or I think in one uh, bill, state legislators can even challenge the teaching of certain concepts or the use of certain materials Um and so, you know, the, the end effect for schools is that it's likely that conservative activist parents are going to be repeatedly raising, uh, you know, concerns with appealing the teaching of certain provisions that is just like almost unworkable in terms of how a teacher plans curriculum in a way that is not going to make them uh, the subject of a complaint. And so the ultimate effect you see here most likely is that schools and teachers just try to sidestep this issue entirely um, as best they can, but that's going to, you know, 
resulting giving sort of a, a surface level and very non-detailed version of, of history on a lot of subjects that are important in the history of our state and the history of our country. Yeah, because what is really frustrating to me is, you know, despite what you would think growing up in South Georgia, I feel like I got a very accurate, maybe not as nuanced version of history, but still very accurate uh, for a high school and middle school level education of what happened in this country, you know, during slavery and Jim Crow, that it was bad, <laughs> that those people were bad that did those things, and that that is not what this country stands for or what you should support. And it was done in a way that was, while very accurate and holding the leaguers at the time accountable and the society accountable for what they did, did not make me feel personally attacked for anything because I was not a segregationist senator in the 1960s. Like, I just, it, it's just, it's so frustrating to me because having a good, accurate education that, you know, teaches people about the wrong things that this country has done in a way that doesn't make you feel personally responsible for it as an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old <laughs> or a 16-year-old, I feel like it's not that difficult to do. And I feel like that is what most schools have done in Georgia from most of the people that I've talked to, except in like the really, really crazy rural uh, county parts of the state. Like most schools are doing a great job of, of being accurate and, and not glorifying the Confederacy or any of this stuff. And what frustrates me so much about this conversation is the quality education on these topics, not perfect, but, you know, f adequate for most people of highlighting, you know, America is a good country, but has done bad things, uh, is, is going to be so much harder now because people are going to be afraid of tripping the you know, CRT witch hunt alarm and, you know, ha don't want anyone to come after them. So they're just not going to talk about these things in the same way that they would have otherwise and have been doing perfectly fine for a long time. And that's the part that frustrates me so much because honestly, I don't care if no one ever gets taught critical race theory <laughs> in uh, high schools because it's not happening. And, and plenty of people have grown up to be good citizens and progressive people without being taught in high school. So I don't care if that never happens, the actual ideology that is critical race theory, but this political bludgeon that is being used to try to do something around education to get rid, you know, to, as an excuse to get rid of other stuff that isn't critical race theory that people don't like, such as equity training or, you know, trying to make people more emotionally intelligent is just, ridiculous to me and so frustrating because I, I, you know, I'm not Hobbesian. I generally believe that people are good and want to do the right thing. And so I don't think most people would be like, Hey, are you against, you know, people being treated equi you know, equitably? Are you against teaching, you know, kids how to think about how other people feel a little bit more. Unless you're a sociopath, I feel like most people are like, yeah, sure, that's fine. I don't care about that. But it's being called critical race theory and being drawn into this conversation, things that are not like that. And it's just frustrating to me that there is not any nuance in this conversation. And I think that the Republicans are pushing this so far and so fast that it's going to have consequences that they probably don't even understand fully yet because they are going to just open up a torrent of 
people who have nothing better to do than screw with the school board or, you know, uh, go after a teacher that, uh, you know, said something to their kid and just make their lives miserable. And it's, these folks are already so resource strained and have hard enough jobs. They don't need more avenues for one parent to have the ability to say, this book is one I don't like. And so I'm going to go to every meeting I possibly can and follow these new procedures to make your life miserable and potentially cost the school 20% of its revenue. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous that that is how we're trying to handle this, especially because Georgia has a infamous history of politicians trying to get involved in how schools handle things, and it never ends well. It's how you get unaccredited. <laughs> Ask Eugene Talmadge. Yeah, um, and that you know, particular point, to me, Luke, raises this other question. Um, when, and real quick on, on the, the financial penalty there, you did see in some of the reporting about these bills that um, even some Republicans are skeptical of having a penalty on a financial penalty on schools that's like 20% of their state funding. So it'll be interesting to see if that provision ultimately makes it into some final bill. But Speaker Ralston got asked about this uh, when he was on Political Rewind on GPB last week. Um, he, I think, created an interesting sort of reframing around the critical race theory discussion in this legislative session, primarily by pivoting away from explicit efforts to ban critical race theory and being more open to a proposal that would uh, create an appeals process to ban obscene materials in classrooms and libraries. And I think maybe one subtle but key difference here is that, you know, a lot of the people animated by fighting critical race theory are very animated by specific teachings around race um, but this effort around obscene materials seems to be more aimed at like sexually explicit content in books that are available in libraries. And so I don't, yeah, I, I say that just to well, say that I mean, there's, again, I didn't read every book in the library, so maybe they're there, but it's like, I don't feel, it's just like, I, I can't think of any book that I was assigned except maybe the stranger, which is George W. Bush's favorite book, which is always just is I I've never understood that just just as a note but like okay there's like you know there's some sexual stuff in that book but it's very PG thirteen uh, and it's just like I I don't understand I I just don't feel like this is a problem again it's it's one of those things where it just feels so unnecessary to create all these avenues for people to complain about things that aren't real that have very very real consequences. Because what you're doing is you're creating a permission structure for, you know, people who want to cause trouble to do that. And I think that's not the the thing that should be focused on right now with all the other problems the state has. Like, because the other part of it is, too, is by doing this, you're, you're not only... You wouldn't... You, you know, you wouldn't come up with a time... I think most voters have a perspective that my my leaders, you know, the people in our community that we look up to would not be talking about an issue unless it's real. And so you're creating a boogeyman and 
encouraging people to go boogeyman hunting. And that means eventually boogeyman's will be found and they will find books that are probably fine that would not cause anybody any problems, but they will become, you know, these pillars of obscenity and just cause a lot of headaches for people who are already having a pretty hard job. And to me, it's just, it's so unnecessary that it's, it's frustrating to know that like, this is what we're spending our time on doing. Well, and, and what I was driving at is because I think the speaker might share some of that frustration with you, Luke. I mean, he referred to the, the people who want to ban critical race theory as, you know, not the first time that there's been a solution in search of a problem in a legislative session, but he did seem more favorable to dealing with, um, the proposal around banning obscene materials. That's a proposal that's led by uh, the speaker pro tem, Jan Jones. Um, but he rate, he basically wanted to reframe the whole conversation around this question of do parents feel like their views of what their children should be learning in schools? Do parents feel that those views are respected? Um, and that sort of ties in with parents frustration about COVID policies, about whether schools are open or not open and that broader question about parental involvement is one that Republicans used pretty effectively in the Virginia governor's race. And Ralston himself even mentioned um, Governor Youngkin in Virginia um, and how he spoke to that specific question in that election. And so you could see Republicans playing that forward and wanting to, at least the ones that are not super obsessed with critical race theory, wanting to pull that discussion out of this sort of divisive issue and into a broader question about how parents feel about schools. And, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on on how Democrats address that, because I don't think any Democrat is going to run in Georgia saying parents have no role over what their children learn in schools. But there is, as there is a, a significant difference of opinion on a lot of issues in this state, there are going to be parents all over the map about what they they're they think their kids should be learning in school and, and how do you even create something workable with people who have such divergent opinions? Well, you know, I will toot my own horn, uh, to start here. Cause I can't help myself. If this is exactly what I said, which is going to be one of Democrats big problems and why I, you know, thought Terry McAuliffe was in trouble and, and feel that the critical race theory conversation for smarter politicians leads to this question of, you know, what are parents roles in schools? And I definitely, think the parents should play a role. And I think Democrats need to come up with a better answer to this question. Because right now, as you know, I pointed out, Republicans' solution is to create boogeymans and let and tell parents to go hunt them. And I don't think that's a great idea. And I don't think that helps anyone. And for every book that is going to end up on a critical race theory list of books that are banned there will be parents that think those books are great and should be the top of the curriculum, I think, probably. And so the imbalance of who gets listened to and whose concerns are taken seriously and whose concerns become a political rallying cry and whose concerns are diminished and hunted down, I think, is a place where Democrats need to have a solution that is not the place where I started, which is that critical race theory, the actual ideology that exists in textbooks, is not taught anywhere in the state of Georgia's K-12 through system. Nobody cares about that. What people care about is 
their kids being taught well and not being, you know, demonized or victimized or, you know, being upset. Like nobody wants their kids to be upset. And so having a platform on education that facilitates parents being involved in a way that doesn't just completely destroy the ability to teach difficult topics well and to give kids the skills and experiences to be able to be successful in life and to you know navigate the world in an educated way and be good citizens like that's not easy and parents have to have a role in that but the way that the republicans are pursuing it they're doing one thing incredibly well they're they are addressing the problem and they're angry about it and there's a lot of parents who are angry about schools for good reason because covid has been horrible for everyone but i feel like probably People with kids have had the worst experience. I would say I don't have kids, so I don't know. But I feel like that's probably the people. It's hard that, on the parents I know. Yeah, like it's horrible. And so Democrats have to have an answer to this is what we're going to do to make parents feel better. And I, frankly, I don't feel like we have done a good job of that because we aren't offering anything. We're getting knocked over by Republicans who are addressing a very real problem with a fake solution. The CRT thing is, again, as I said earlier, but not on this show, so I should repeat myself so I don't get in trouble, which is that it is, the CRT argument is really effective because it is saying something that a lot of parents believe, which is the schools aren't doing it right right now. The schools are screwing up. And it lets people jump on a bandwagon against schools and until you actually are offering solutions i don't think democrats are gonna be able to win this fight and that is a you know there's a lot of parents in georgia and so if you just completely are failing to address a key constituency's giant concerns you're you're not going to do well and so i think georgia democrats and democrats nationally need to come up with something to give parents a legitimate outlet a way to collaborate with their schools and to express actual empathy ironically <laughs> uh, on this issue and to take these concerns seriously even if you strongly disagree with the solution being offered by your political opponents you don't have to ignore the concern that is bringing parents to bring up these things yeah and i i think it is worth standing on on at least one principle that we have to remember that these are public schools and that just because one parent or a small group of parents believes that something is, uh, you know, not age appropriate for their kid or is not the way that they would teach that subject themselves. If, if they were the ones teaching their kid, that doesn't mean that the view of one parent or a small group of parents gets to determine the educational opportunities available to an entire school. And so if you want to set up something where, you know, certain parents can opt out or opt their kids out of things. Like, I think that that's, you know, if, if you really want to honor what that small subset of parents believes, I, I think that's a, the type of policy you could consider. Um, but, but I think for most parents, I mean, this is why this is a little perplexing to me because actually the, this is a, a very high profile issue for Republicans right now. And it's hot in the Republican grassroots, but the AJC poll of, of 
voters found that only 9% of voters responded that education was the most important issue for them. And as is usual, the number one issue was the economy. And maybe somewhat surprising, the second uh, most important issue to voters in the AJC poll was elections and election administration. Um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. But, you know, education, again, did not rank very highly on the list. And I think for most parents, yes, I think they would you know, appreciate more opportunities for their views to be heard and for them to feel like they're a partner in their, their children's education when they go to a public school. But I don't think most parents are going to be combing the curriculum or reading lists and getting upset about every little, you know, every little reading or, or segment of a book. And I think most parents are probably largely okay with what's in the curriculum most of the time. And so, you know, I think that's another thing that, that you consider in the situation too. I think the place where I would end is that while it's really easy to malign critical race theory is something that is not actually taught anywhere. It, the reason why that set of beliefs is so threatening to a lot of conservatives is because it is addressing something that they don't want addressed. And I think that should also be recognized. I don't, I think it's important that Democrats don't throw racial inequality and systematic racism out of their, you know, campaign and policy goals of addressing those problems. But I think the balance that really needs to be hit now, both for political success, but also policy success is just understanding that parents have legitimate concerns that aren't critical race theory, but are being umbrellaed under that, or they're being made more sympathetic to the critical race theory arguments because of the other legitimate concerns. I, not that I think that this is necessarily good political advice, but I, I think it is worth it to make clear that if you want to do advocacy on these issues, that you have people in your community, the people who serve on your local school board, the teachers that teach in your local schools, you have people who will listen to you. But if you show up at these school board meetings as a mob and you make school board members or other people in the education system fear for their safety in trying to deal with you, you are not going to be successful in advocating your point to the people in charge. And, you know, the most glaring example of this was uh, the blowback in Virginia to um, whether or not school districts will continue to require masks for students, even though the governor signed an executive order there um, that I think was aimed at ending mask mandates in schools. And one parent showed up and said, if you make my kid continue to wear a mask, I'm going to show up at the school with a bunch of guns on Monday and I'll see all of you there. And that, you know, that's an extreme example. I, I think that parent got arrested and, and charges were placed against that parent. But you saw this bit, you saw several examples of parents acting just totally unprofessionally in the face of school board members to the point that the association that represents school boards across the country drafted a somewhat controversial letter to the Department of Justice saying, you know, you need to explore options for keeping us safe in these public meetings because we're required to have these meetings in public. They're required to be accessible by people. 
But there are people who we believe are, are dangerous who are showing up to these things to yell at school board members and make them feel unsafe. And so, you know, that is that is another aspect of this that I think sort of needs to be recaptured is it's not just that they're it's not as if schools have zero mechanisms to hear from parents. Like that is a thing that already happens. But if you are doing it in such a way that the people you are advocating to feel unsafe, you need to kind of rethink your approach there. Well, and this is, again, what makes me so frustrated about this issue is because they don't care about that. They're using it. Republicans are using it as a political rallying cry. And this is exactly what they want to have happen. You know, not the threat part, but the, the anger and the vitriol and the passionate response is what they want. And they want to politically benefit from that because it gives everyone someone to blame that's not them. And they can pretend to be trying to fix these issues. But it, 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 you know, again, it's a witch hunt. It never ends for them. And so I, I think that part of it is where Democrats are missing a lot of opportunity to actually address real concerns because that would lower the temperature on these issues. And in, in just telling parents they're wrong <laughs> about their kids is not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't work out for Terry McAuliffe. It's not going to work out for you. Um, last thing here today, Luke, another notable finding from the uh, AJC poll was that 38% of people surveyed believe that there was widespread fraud in the election in 2020 and uh, 41% of people surveyed do not believe that the 2022 election will be conducted fairly. Those figures run right into a report from the AJC that uh, covers a confidential report um, that has come up as a part of a court case challenging the state's election machines. Um, a report that says that hackers could flip votes if they gained access to the touchscreen election machine devices that the state uses and that although there was no sign that there was any tampering with the last election, it's a, it's a vulnerability that uh, still could be exploited um, and, and raises a serious uh, safety concern for the machines that Georgia just bought. Um, you know, the, the judge on that, on that case, Amy Totenberg, who's been hearing a lot of the election-related uh, legal challenges over the past few years, she's considering whether or not a redacted version of that report on that security vulnerability will become public. Um, and so it's possible that report could come out in the next few days. It might even be out by the time you're hearing this episode, but boy, like, you know, everybody and their mother has been saying there was no fraud. There were no vulnerabilities. Everything was fine with the 2020 election. And now you have some security researchers saying, yeah, actually the whole thing could be like catastrophically vulnerable. <laughs> That's well, not fun. You know, who could have predicted this? Every Democrat. Secure election law security experts, computer experts, IT people all said that this system had this vulnerability and yet we spent all these millions of dollars updating our system to a system that everyone who actually knew about this technology said had, a had this vulnerability because... Well, and, and one key gap there just to highlight is, remember, these are the machines that print the QR codes um, but it's possible, at least according to this report, that a vulnerability could be exploited to change the vote without any sort of visible change for the voter 
because uh, the person's selection and the QR code are two separate things on that piece of paper. Right. And it it's just frustrating to me because either way we're, you know, we either way we lose because either this case will result in us having to spend a whole bunch of money and change our system and voters will have to deal with that confusion again and all our election workers will have to deal with all that confusion, you know, all the new system again, a new system again, or we're going to keep a system that has a vulnerability like this because it, it, it's just obvious to anyone who's dealt with technology that it's really hard to get around these vulnerabilities. <laughs> it's very, very hard. And when you are using things that are not readable to a human eye, it should be obvious why that could lead to a problem. And, you know, to be fair to the system, and I was very pleased and happy that it does create the ability for hand recount because, yes, the paper printout has a QR code on it, but it also has the names of candidates, but it, it just creates a vulnerability because not every race can be or should be counted by hand by human beings. And that that's just a very high burden. And so just keeping this possibility alive for a vulnerability this big just seems stupid to me. And I don't understand why we did this when a vast majority of states in this country do not use systems that have this vulnerability. They use systems where voters handwrite who they want and there's different versions. That's why I'm being a little, you know, uh, vague, but it's like there, there's, there's so many different systems that don't have this vulnerability that would easily get past this issue. And we decided for reasons unknown to pick a system that had this vulnerability. Yeah. And in the face of dueling narratives around whether or not our elections are secure or not like a real security vulnerability, you know, yes, I think, I think people who want to say that Georgia's elections are secure should certainly not ignore this, but, but you're going to see this paraded around, um, almost definitely by people who want to just in, in general, so more distrust of elections. Um, so, you know, not, not really a fun update to share here on, on that issue. Um, Luke, I don't know if you want to say anything about, uh, the news that Supreme court justice Stephen Breyer is going to step down, but president Biden's going to get to nominate his replacement. And it seems likely that Democrats will, uh, confirm whoever the president nominates so long as they maintain their 50 seat majority up until that process is done. Um, this I think is going to be less dramatic than, than previous confirmations. Um, but any thoughts on this process before we go? Yeah, I only have one thing to add beyond what I said earlier that it's sad that an 82 year old retiring is a great accomplishment for you know, Joe Biden. Uh, but I, I did find it interesting on some of the short lists that, uh, people have um, mentioned of potential nominees is uh, Leslie Abrams Gardner and the name Abrams should be familiar for the reason exactly think that this is uh, Stacey Abrams' sister who is a U.S. district uh, court judge in the middle district of Georgia. Um, you know, definitely not at the the top of anyone's list as far as I've seen, but just the fact that she's on the list I, I, I thought was uh, interesting and uh, I am happy that Justice Breyer is stepping down. Uh, while I am a uh, fan of his opinions and, and and you know think he has done a great job, he's eighty two. Enjoy some time with your grandkids, man. <laughs> you know, do something other than be on the Supreme Court, and it will be good to uh, finally you know get and 
get a black woman on the Supreme Court. It's insane and ridiculous that that has not happened yet. So I'm happy that uh, we will do it because there are plenty of people who are very qualified. So, All right. Well, more coming attractions in Washington and Atlanta. We'll be keeping our eyes on all of it, but we're going to let you go for today. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here and go dogs. Go dogs. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.